Well, thank you, Professor Clough, for, uh, you'll just take a seat just for a moment. You can catch your breath. Um, uh, thank you for an address that was at once nourishing, disturbing, and challenging uh, as you uh, broadened our theological vision and imagination, um, unsettled our familiar practice, um, and called us to a better, kinder life um, uh, under our Creator. Uh, while you're catching your breath, while you're considering questions that you may um, want to ask, uh, Professor Clough, I have four quick ads. The first is to acknowledge that our food tonight, the vegetarian and vegan meal that you ate, was from a place called Parliament on King, who is often our supplier um, for food at Peace Talks, and they are a social enterprise uh, run by and for refugees. Um, and so if you are looking for catering for events, um, uh, at your own churches or your own uh, organisations, then I recommend them to you. They're, they're a great bunch. Uh, second is to talk about Peace Talks itself. Um, this, uh, I see many familiar faces here and some new ones. Uh, if you're not familiar with Peace Talks, this is an enterprise of uh, Paddington Anglican Church, a ministry here. Um, and the peace in Peace Talks stands for political, ethical, artistic and cultural engagement. Um, and at the back, uh, on your way out, you'll, you'll see that there's a chance, if you wish, to uh, fill in some details so that we can be in contact with you about future events. Um, Brooke is on the cusp of confirming the next couple of events, but unfortunately she, she told me today she's not quite ready to announce them publicly yet. Um, so if you would like to know about future Peace Talks events, um, fill in this form uh, and or join the Facebook group um, online. The third ad, slightly self-indulgently, is that uh, if you would like to hear more uh, from Professor Clough, then immediately prior to this uh, lecture tonight, uh, he was recording with me the next episode of my podcast, The Good Dirt, um, where we were connecting the dots between some of the themes of tonight and some contemporary items in the news. And so you can find The Good Dirt on wherever you find your podcasts. And fourth and finally, uh, David's already mentioned the um, one of the flyers on your uh, seat, the Creature Kind information, the other one is about his, uh, his two books. We have tonight five copies uh, of the second book, which is not yet available in hardcover, sorry, not yet available in paperback online, it's only available in paperback tonight, um, until it comes out in, in paperback. Um, it's $55 uh, tonight, and as I said, we only have five copies um, so if you're getting quickly, you can get one of those. Otherwise, you've got to either buy it hardcover um, or wait for the, uh, the, the, the paperback version to come out at some point. Um, and you'll also see there's a, a deal through the publisher there to get a discount if you buy either of those volumes online. Uh, they were my four ads. And so, having given you all a chance to reflect on some questions, we have, we have an opportunity for a few minutes. Uh, if there are any questions that you would like to ask Professor Clough to comment publicly on. One thing you um, didn't mention tonight was the practice of hunting. Um, what's your position on hunting animals? So I think um, we need to separate very carefully um, the practice of subsistence hunting for food from uh, hunting as a recreational activity. It seems to me that um, hunting for food, um, especially where uh, through, through methods that um, inflict minimal suffering on uh, wild animals able to live freely in a natural habitat, 
that looks like a much preferable mode of consuming uh, animals than raising them in the industrial and animal agriculture systems uh, that I've described. And so it seems to me that in the ideal case, at least, where animals aren't left uh, to, you know, wounded or uh, suffering for a long period of time, hunting for food um, could be a better alternative than industrial animal agriculture um, if we're to continue to eat animals. However, the part of the book that I was most deeply upset by in the writing of it uh, was the, the idea of recreational uh, hunting as uh, an enterprise. Uh, it's very striking to me that both in Jewish and Christian uh, traditions over a long period, the idea of hunting for fun was very, very strongly uh, deprecated. And I was looking at organizations in the US that are um, uh, a, a, allowing uh, people to enter scorecards and get points and promotion through their uh, through the organization in in relation to their destructive power over uh, other animals and I think that is deeply sickening um, and that uh, the desire to wield that kind of power over other animals is uh, symptomatic of a very deep uh, spiritual malaise so so I, I, I want to challenge very strongly the idea that um, killing animals for fun could be any part of a proper Christian uh, activity, but I would put a strong distinction between that and uh, hunting for food. Hi. Uh, something that's been confusing me for a while is um, I was very struck by the uh, description you gave of uh, what fish go through in nets when they're being like trawled up uh, and how they're either crushed or asphyxiated. Uh, that seems to me, uh, personally, to be probably the worst way to get food because there's no... I don't see any way of doing that without causing significant pain to the animal. Like, at least with chickens, you can cut their head off easily and they die instantly, but a fish, it seems to be the most painful way. However, one of Jesus' miracles was... Um, inspiring a massive load of fish to be caught in nets. Mm -hmm. So that seems to um, uh, suggest that it's not entirely wrong, I guess, to um, farm animals that way and cause them pain. Um, yeah, do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, so, um, so obviously if, what, it's not farming that's going on in terms of that practice, but it certainly suggests that um, eat, uh, killing animals for food has not always and everywhere been wrong. Um, that's, def that's definitely not an argument I want to make. I think it's quite plausible in relationship to um, sort of early human development that at some point we needed access to concentrated sources of animal protein in order to become the creatures that we are today with you know, big brains uh, like this. And so, um, and in many parts of the world now, uh, people can't get by without uh, relying on uh, animal products. So we've got, uh, you know, Sibi Siberian pastoralists uh, following reindeer herds, and we've got um, uh, African uh, pastoralists very dependent on cattle um, for their livelihood with very, with very little opportunities for um, other f forms of uh, feeding themselves. And so I'm not offering any kind of um, absolute against the killing of animals for food. I'm trying to say that given uh, the the 
the practice, the food practices, and the mode of raising animals uh, at the moment. There seems to be really, really strong reasons to be profoundly concerned about um, the difference between how animals were being used in Jesus's time and what we're uh, doing to them. So, in Jesus' time, people would be have been consuming a lot less animals because they were just uh, uh, so expensive, and it was uh, problematic uh, to uh, get hold of them. And um, obviously, none of them would be raised in the uh, novel industrial environments that we've created uh, now. So it seems to me that in the end, we might, um, there might be um, reason. I mean, I'm, I'm a vegan partly, and the, you know, the title of this lecture, Eating More Peaceably, I see connections between my Christian pacifism and uh, a Christian veganism, which is if I have the choice between readily available sources of plant uh, nutrition that can keep me uh, healthy and a less uh, impactful on the environment and fellow uh, human beings uh, as well as uh, wild and domesticated animals. That seems to me a really good reason for just adopting a plant-based diet. Um, but again, that's a contextual uh, judgment. Um, and the, the argument I really would like to win with fellow Christians is that we definitely need to be distancing ourselves from industrial animal agriculture and that and the kind of feels to me like we've just sleepwalked into complicity with systems that look scandalously at odds with Christian faith commitments. Um, and so I think the whole, the, the, I mean, fellow Christians and everybody else uh, ought to be convinced that you know, making significant reductions in our consumption of animal products and then mo moving to higher welfare sourcing for any remaining products ought to be something we could all quickly agree on. Uh, and once we've all quickly agreed on having nothing to do with industrial animal agriculture, I'd be very happy to debate the merits of veganism versus um, looking after animals really well and then eating them. <coughs> If we follow what you said just then and before, uh, cutting back on meat and other products and um, cutting back, cutting out the un unethical ones, you might end up, we might all, it's something like eating, if you weren't vegan, maybe 10% of what we ate before, some figure like that. I can see that, I would say we're probably part way back towards that anyway from what I used to be and I can see that's doable. Uh -huh. But Australia's an, an astonishing... It's almost part of our culture that, that you be a meat eater if you're a man. It's not going to happen easily except for very few people, even among Christians, I think. Um, but outside the Christianity, do you see any way of moving even a little way to, towards more ethically sourced food and, and reduced meat eating and, and all the rest? So... Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think changing people's eating practice is a really big challenge. Um, you know, food, food is a deeply habitual practice. It's associated with all kinds of sense of our own identity. Uh, for men, uh, as you um, uh, identify, it's also uh, practices about what it means to be sociable with people we love and traditions of sociability, you know, Christmas meals and all that kind of uh, uh, stuff, what it means to feast together, you know, very, very strongly um, identified with familial and cultural uh, traditions. So I don't at all underestimate the the challenges in changing uh, food culture. Um, but we have changed food culture so much in the last 50 to 70 years. You know, I think what you're describing in terms of going back to eating about 10% of what we currently eat, that's probably something like our grandparents used to eat in terms of um, uh, consumption of animal products. Um, and so it seems to me that 
um, it, although it's quite hard to imagine these kind of changes, it, in fact, it turns out that our practices are very uh, malleable. Uh, and one of the obstacles in relation to changing practice at the moment is the way we're being sold animal products at every uh, uh, turn. I mean, why is meat eating so strongly associated with, associated with masculine identity? Because the marketers of, of, of meat have been telling us that it is for all this time. And so that's one of the points at which the complexity of this issue with much wider problems within um, you know, uh, strategies for generating overconsumption of products need to be um, um, addressed. Uh, and there's two interesting things that are going on at the moment. So one is, this, is a traject global trajectory towards increases in consumption of animal products. But uh, alongside that, in many countries, including uh, mine, there's really significant evidence that there's a growing sh shift in eating practice. And so about a third of the people in the UK at the moment either say they're vegan, vegetarian, or they're reducing their consumption of uh, meat. There's been about a three or four hundred percent increase in the growth of vegan products, most of, being, most of whom, which are not being consumed by vegans. Um, and uh, I've certainly found lots of wonderful vegan food in Sydney while I've uh, been here. I think there is a big uh, uh, potential shift, uh, but I don't underestimate the challenge of um, uh, increasing that to a scale where it might begin to uh, address you know, this global projected uh, rise. And so that's why I want to call um, the attention of Christian churches to this, because while it's difficult, it seems to me that this might just be one small test case of the kind of radical revisions in our way of life that might be what's going to lead to life being slightly more sustainable uh, in the context of uh, a climate crisis and refugee crisis in the world that's uh, coming in the decades ahead. So it seems to me if we can't make decisions together about changing our practice in, in this one issue about uh, consumption of animal products, um, that, is, that would be a very bad sign for the health of uh, the, a, a church that's, that believes stuff and wants to uh, uh, have a practice that's coherent with, with what it believes. Hi, thank you so much. Um, I was wondering um, a little bit about the connection with theology and um, animals. So uh, the way you spoke about often in Christian circles, we're kind of taught God, humans, animals, very much probably my own upbringing. And I guess I was wondering if you had any suggestions on how we could maybe start that conversation with other people in our world that might have that same perspective and kind of thinking, well, humans have souls and they need to know about Jesus and get to heaven, for example, whereas animals don't in their thinking. So, yeah, I don't know. How could we get them to start thinking a bit differently? So it seems to me that um, opening the conversation is a really good starting point. And I think this six-week uh, Creature Kind course for churches is a really good environment where lots of people have found that that does enable these conversations to be opened up in a non-threatening way and provoke some really good conversation about this stuff. So that would be um, one uh, recommendation um, that I'd have. Um, and I think we need to begin to ask why it's been so important to us to um, preserve this sense of uh, species superiority and status. Um, 
uh, and I'm becoming increasingly convinced that uh, the dynamics uh, that have maintained this human, non-human uh, superiority are actually very similar to the kind of structures that um, uh, sustain uh, white supremacist uh, views as well, and that there are really important associations between our attitudes towards other animals and our atti and, uh, uh, and, and racist white supremacist attitudes. So that's one area I want, I'm taking up in my work beyond this uh, two-volume uh, work so so I, I so I think these things are deep seated um, there is really some of the most interesting thinking in this sphere is coming from uh, sort of uh, black veganism movement in the US there's a brilliant short book by uh, uh, Sil and Afco called Afroism which is about how uh, they see the human-animal uh, binary as uh, really problematic in, a, in a sort of white supremacist stuff. There's been, you know, for a while, peop uh, some black people have been saying, well, it's no good to just call humans animals because you white people, you know, you know um, so critique towards me, you white people have been calling us animals uh, all of this time. You know, how could you uh, expect us to own this uh, term animals? But it's interesting, in recent years, like the, the co-sisters and other black vegans have been saying, this whole human-animal thing is uh, a white supremacist thing that needs unpicking if we're going to get racial justice. And so I'm really keen on trying to open conversations which might get us to question why we've just been so concerned about this particular sort of status uh, seeking. Um, and as I've tried to say, I don't think we need to rush to um, the sort of singer slogan, all animals are equal. I think that is probably unhelpful in a Christian uh, context. I think uh, we don't need to um, unseat that sense of a moral priority of being concerned about humans. Um, and so that part, I think we could leave uh, in place because the kind of strategies that I think are most important, as I've said, are kind of win-win-win in relation to human well-being, um, animal well-being, and environmental well-being. Hello. Um, I really appreciated your discussion on redemption um, and quite related to what was just being talked about. Um, I wonder if, uh, at least in my Christian world, um, the, more, the superiority of man is from the notion of like subduing the earth or ruling over the earth. Could you maybe talk about how you understand that phrase in Genesis? Yeah, sure. Um, so... First of all, we've got to recognize that that verse is in the context of Genesis 1, um, and, and the end of Genesis 1 is stipulating food, appropriate foods for humans and other animals, which is all plant-based. <laughs> so, so strategies have kind of lifted out that subdue and uh, dominion uh, text um, from their context um, seem to me to be you know, really problematic. Because whatever subduing, um, whatever dominion and subduing means, it can't mean the right to take the lives of animals for food, um, in the context of Genesis one. Now, it seems to me that if we begin to think back to um, a, a task of uh, sort of proto-humans in a sort of wider creaturely world, you know, obviously the, the task of actually trying to make a living uh, from the land and finding sufficient things to eat is, you know, a challenging one. 
And I'm really struck by uh, what I was reading about sort of uh, Maori histories where uh, the Maoris had developed, you know, an agricultural system which was generating significant food surpluses. But when the, you know, when my English uh, colonial forebears arrived, uh, they were starving to death, you know, both in New Zealand and in uh, New England because they didn't know how to uh, make the land work. And so I think there might be something about subduing which is about, um, you know, um, um, Taming, taming the land in order to generate um, uh, uh, enough food to get by. And, you know, as we know, even um, indigenous peoples in Australia were doing very sophisticated land management uh, techniques of various kinds and agricultural practice in order to, I, th I, I guess we could call it subdue the land, in order to make it uh, a possible place for humans to live. And so I, that's, the, that's the way I would begin to explore uh, subdue. It's not all easy because the, when you look at that term subdue, that's used in a very violent way in other parts of uh, the Old Testament. And so, you know, we need to be careful. But the, but the, I, I think receiving that text means that it's hard work <laughs> to get food out of the land. And in, in a sort of urban context, we've sometimes uh, forgotten that. So it requires really vigorous work to make the land uh, suitable for humans to be able to get by. And then if we go on to Genesis 2, the human task there is to uh, tend the garden, and I think the, uh, the best kind of common commentaries on that emphasize how far it's the human task to enable the flourishing of these other than human uh, creatures, plants and, or um, uh, well, especially plants in uh, the early parts of Genesis 2. And so again, we need to read that subdue in the context of this other vision in Genesis 2 of enabling the flourishing of the earth and allowing the earth to be fruitful in all its uh, diverse uh, ways. And so all of these texts need to be, you know, we need to make, we're making decisions about readings. The you know, Bible is just not saying anything by itself. It's always saying something you know, to us, and we need to decide as communities of readers how we're going to receive and interpret these texts. But it seems to me that especially in the context of the environmental crisis that, we've, uh, that we find ourselves, to, to sort of lift verses out of um, uh, Genesis um, and say that that gives us some kind of legitimation for the vast devastation we're causing um, for, on, a, on a planetary scale at the moment is certainly doesn't look like a very promising reading. So I think it's really striking in the, uh, the current state in which we find ourselves that um, a human distinctive seems to be to have an unparalleled power over other creatures. Um, and part, maybe part of what uh, Genesis 1 is saying is that part of what it means to be uh, human is to um, have this uh, uh, power. Um, and Genesis 1 isn't telling us not to be powerful because we probably can't avoid being uh, powerful. Um, but um, imaging the kind of God that we worship rather than some tyrannical despot seems to me to be exercising that dominion in a way that would be um, genuinely witnessing to the God that Christians worship rather than um, some uh, you know, devastating deity that was only interested in, in their own interests. So I would be wanting to keep all of those, the, the sort of readings about imaging God and dominion and subduing um, alongside the um, you know, original setting out of a vegan diet for humans and the responsibility to, to, to till the earth and try and think together about what that complex of ideas might mean in the context in which we find ourselves. Thank you. Um, 
for those questions and uh, the answers, and the conversation uh, can continue in a few moments over refreshments. But I believe, uh, Professor Clough, you have a, a final request to make of us. Oh yeah, if you just if you've got a moment before you go, and wouldn't mind um, uh, giving just completing a six-question uh, online um, uh, questionnaire, I'd be very grateful. It helps me make the case uh, for the value of getting out and talking to people uh, about this stuff. So either going to that URL or scanning that code, hopefully that will work on the wall, um, um, would just lead you to a very quick one-minute um, questionnaire in terms of your uh, response, and that would be helpful if you've got a, a moment to do that before you go. Great. Well, please join with me in thanking once again Professor Clough for coming to be with us. We really appreciate your, your presence and your wisdom, your insight, your scholarship, um, and the warmth with which you've engaged this whole complex and pressing issue. Thanks very much, Karen.